You are listening to The Adventures of Sariputta and Mogalana. I'm your host, Morris Sullivan. I recently spoke at White Sands Buddhist Center about the role of faith and worship in Buddhism and how that relates to practice. I'll share that with you in a few moments. But first, let me tell you one of the Jataka tales. These stories are said to be about the Buddha during previous existences. So he wasn't yet the Buddha, of course, and he's referred to in these stories as the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be. Well, one of the Jataka tales concerns the king of Kuru, a devout and generous man. The king wanted very badly to be virtuous, and so one day he asked his chaplain to explain to him what was good and true. The chaplain thought about this for a moment. He said it was a very profound and difficult question. He didn't really feel qualified to tell the king what was good and true. He thought maybe his friend, the famous priest in Varanasi, would be able to answer the question. So the king told his chaplain, we'll go ahead and go to Varanasi. When he got there, the chaplain went to the priest's house, and the friends had a meal together and chatted for a while. The chaplain explained why he had come, and he asked his friend to explain to him truth and goodness. The priest admitted that he didn't know the answer either. The question was just too profound. But he had three sons, and the oldest son was very wise, so surely he could explain truth and goodness. Well, the oldest son welcomed the chaplain into his home, but after hearing the question, he admitted he was having improper relations with a married woman. Since he was obviously not good and true himself, perhaps he shouldn't try to answer the question. The priest had two more sons, and so the chaplain went to the middle one, who was also involved in some unethical behaviors and didn't feel like he was qualified to talk about truth and goodness either. However, the middle son said the youngest brother even though he was only seven years old, was probably the wisest person in Varanasi. He should seek him out and put the question to him. The chaplain was very discouraged and not at all convinced that a seven-year-old boy could tell him what the renowned priest and the other brothers couldn't, but he sought him out anyway and he found him playing with some other boys in the street. Chaplain asked the question of the young boy, who answered with a voice clear and sweet that rang through the streets of Varanasi, To reach heaven, the path of truth should always be followed. Do good, refrain from doing harm, and inspire others to follow that example. People all over the city heard the answer and rejoiced. The chaplain wrote the words out on a tablet, gave the boy an offering of gold coins, and returned to Kuru. Once back, he told the king what the boy had said, and the king followed those instructions. He lived a good and true life for the rest of his days, and when he died, he was reborn in the most blissful of heavens. Many years later, the Buddha heard some of his monks discussing the Dharma, and he told them this story. He explained that the king of Kuru, the chaplain, and the priest were earlier births of Ananda and two other advanced monks. The oldest brother and middle brother were Mogalana and Sariputta. The youngest brother was, of course, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be. So I want to uh, I want to read you something. This is uh, this comes from a section of the Sutra of Infinite Life, in which the Bodhisattva Dharmakara 
is praising his teacher, the Buddha Lokasvaraja, and he vows to himself to become enlightened. He says, as the morning sun lights the mountain peak, so does your face shine. Such awesome brightness and nobility is without equal, beyond compare, brighter than sun and moon and the finest jewels. Your presence transcends the world, defies compare. The sound of Buddha's right enlightenment reverberates throughout the universe. In virtue, listening, endeavor, concentration, and wisdom, you are unsurpassed and rare. Your discernment plumbs the inner depths of all the many Buddha's dharma seas. In anger, greed, and ignorance are fleeting for you, the world-honored one. I vow to become like you, a Buddha Dharma king, transcending life and death to enlighten all. Generosity, virtue, patience, and diligence fortify my mind. Samadhi and deep wisdom are their crown. I will strive to fully realize this vow, creating peace for all who doubt and fear. And so after he made this vow to become a Buddha, to transcend life and death and suffering, the the cycles of coming and going to enlighten everyone, this king, Dharmakara, goes on to fulfill that aspiration. And he perfects all the virtues, and he himself becomes a Buddha. So because of this vow, and because of the tradition that arises out of this particular sutra, There's a path in Buddhism that allows one to get assistance from faith in order to follow the Buddha way. So a lot of people don't think of Buddhism as a faith tradition because Sakyamuni Buddha, you know, the the human being who founded Buddhism was, as I said, a human being just like me and you who did things that we could do and realize something that we could realize. Um, And I was kind of asked about this once. This was probably 10 years ago. I was invited by a hospital chaplain to talk at a luncheon with healthcare professionals. And um, there was kind of a Q&A, and one of them said that they understood that Buddhists might not be deists. We don't look to a god for salvation, as followers of many other religions do. And so I asked this hospital chaplain there, I said, if you, who was, a, I think, probably a Seventh-day Adventist, I said, if you had to sum up Christianity in just a few words, what would you say? And so he quoted John 3.16, which if you came up as a Christian, you know this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. And then I said, well, when the Buddha was asked to sum up his religion very briefly, he would say this. Do good, avoid evil, purify the mind. This is the way to liberation. So on one hand, we have a statement of belief. Whoever believes this is saved. And on the other hand, we have a path of practice. Do these things and you are freed. But this doesn't mean that faith isn't important in Buddhism. It's just a little different than it is in some other religions. In fact, you don't believe in something because you're told to. Even if I tell you, you don't have to believe it. Instead, you have faith as a practice. Okay, So I'm sure that that doesn't make a lot of sense. But stick with me. It will, I promise. 
So Buddhists are not really expected to believe in very much in, in terms of blind faith. The Buddha was very specific about this. He said in a couple of discourses, he was talking about how to determine if something is true. And he said, don't believe something just because it's tradition, just because some authority figure like Sensei Morris said it, or because it comes from some holy book or scripture or whatever. Instead, he said, follow this step-by-step process of developing a faith in a way that includes the use of your reason, critical thinking and all that stuff. Observe the teacher to see if he or she uh, embodies the teachings in a way that is untainted by greed and delusion. And then listen carefully to determine what's being taught. Make sure you understand what's being said and how it applies to you, and that's very important. You listen to the Dharma talk and you don't think about how it applies to your life, then you know it's not going to have the same impact, and then practice the teaching until you see the truth for yourself. And so there's a little faith at the beginning of the, this process when you say, okay, I've heard this, this teaching and teacher, seem to have something that will benefit me. And then at the end of the process, that initial faith is rewarded with more faith. Realizing the fruit of the practice, faith grows along with the wisdom that you're developing. Does that make sense? So this is where things like worship starts to come in. When you see what compassion the teacher has shown you by helping you become free, then you're naturally moved to gratitude for the teacher and for the path. So Buddhists express that gratitude by bowing to the teacher, to the Buddha, along with the teachings and the community of others who practice and support the teachings. So we, we go for refuge, we, we bow to the Buddha, to the, tart, to the Dharma, the teachings, and to the Sangha, those who embody the, the teachings and keep it alive and convey it to us. So bowing is probably the most obvious form of worship that you'll see Buddhists doing. Some Americans have some difficulty with the idea of bowing, especially if it looks like you're bowing to a statue. You're here, so you're probably not one of those people, but uh, you might have to explain it to somebody sometime. Um, and, and so it kind of becomes helpful to think about what it is that you're doing when we bow. So when someone asks me, I explain that bowing is an acknowledgement that a lot of our day-to-day concerns are really getting in the way of our higher purpose. When we really bow, when we bow in our hearts, not just with our bodies, we're reminded that our head is not the highest point in the universe. In other words, we're recognizing that our ego our preferences, our likes, our dislikes, our shoulds and shouldn'ts and judgments and all that stuff is not really that important when it comes to the context that is the greater reality, the higher reality. So I've been ordained in a few different traditions at this point. I was in monk, but um, before that I got the sensei title actually from a, um, an organization that's non-sectarian Buddhism but its roots are at a school of Buddhism called Jogo Shinshu, which means true pure land school. And, and that school actually puts a lot of faith, of emphasis on faith and worship as a practice. 
And when I first encountered it, having come from Zen and, and then from Thai Buddhism, uh, it threw me a little bit. I wasn't quite sure what to make of all of that. Uh, the core teachings come from the Pure Land Sutras. I read you a section of probably the main, the most, uh, the key Pure Land Sutra earlier, which involved this story about this king, Dharmakara. And he had heard this Buddha named Lokasvara speak. And hearing him speak, he becomes awakened. And he's so moved by gratitude and by love, in kind of the highest sense, for this teacher, because he's shown him a way out of suffering. And so he spontaneously bows and begins to sing his praises, basically. As the morning sun lights the mountain peaks, so does your face shine. In other words, being in his presence, this Buddha's presence, has awakened him to the light that is in the world. He says, such awesome brightness and nobility is without equal, incomparable. And after praising the teacher this way, he makes a vow that he wants to do the same thing. He wants to have that too. He wants to have this ability to bring light to others and create a heavenly paradise that will welcome all sincere believers. And so with diligent practice, he becomes Amitabha Buddha. Somebody asked me last week, how do you, how, how do you, uh, they had done the Bodhisattva vows and they were asking me about that. Is that person here? Let's see. Okay. Um, so Amitabha, or this Dharmakara, becomes a Buddha named Amitabha, also referred to as Amitayas. So Amitabha means infinite light, and Amitayas means infinite life. So he's the Buddha of infinite light and life. And when he becomes this Buddha, he realized this goal. He was able, with the power of the mind of a Buddha, to create this realm called the Pure Land, a land of ultimate bliss. And he said, anyone who sincerely embodies the principles of infinite light and life just by saying his name, sincerely, Adina Phat, you heard that during the service tonight, or Namo Amitabha, or in Japanese, Namo Amitabutsu, could be reborn in that land and thus transcend the cycle of suffering. And in this heavenly realm, the whole point of being born there is that it's very easily to become enlightened there. The hope is that all living beings will eventually be reborn there, and when that happens, everyone will be freed from the cycle of suffering. So, are you still with me? All right. So what's required to enter this, this pure land is not that you die and go someplace special. What's required to enter the pure land is a state of mind. And in, in the form of Buddhism that I was mentioning, Jodo Shinshu, this state of mind is called Shinjin, true and trusting. And this idea is central to that, but it's not unique to it. So when I decided to become uh, a monk again, I ordained in Soto Zen. And, and the reason I picked that was I encountered this essay by its founder, Zen Master Dogen. And the essay was called Getting the Marrow by Doing Obeisance. In other words, by getting the marrow, getting to the heart of the practice, right to the center of the practice, what the practice is all about, to have the practice in your bones. And by obeisance, he meant well, we say namo a lot during the services here. 
When we say Namo Tikkamani Phat, we're saying Namo, I do obeisance to Sakyamuni Buddha. Anyway, in that essay, Dogen says, getting the marrow and receiving the Dharma always depend on utmost sincerity in the believing mind. Sincere faith is not something. Sincere faith is not something that comes to you from the outside, nor is it something that moves to the outside from within you. It simply signifies prizing the Dharma while making light of yourself. It is to abandon the world and regard the way as your abode. If you think of yourself as being only slightly more precious than the Dharma, the Dharma will not be passed on to you, nor will you attain it. So this is a big ask to entrust that you can let go of all of those concerns that your ego is bound up with in order to abide in the Dharma. But that's what saying the Nimbutsu, Namo Abhita Butsu, or, or Namo Adita Phat, really means. It means to trust that if you move toward a state of enlightenment, you're not going to regret it. That if you let go of the things that you cling to, that you think are important, in order to really set your heart on what is truly important, on awakening itself, on living a better life, then you're going to be rewarded for that by, ha- by being happier, by being more fulfilled, by living more authentically, and those kinds of things. So in our practice, you know, we can say Namo Amida Butsu or Namo Adirafat, which, and you might say that when you greet one another. You're recognizing that you're on this path together. You might say it when you feel grateful during services and things like that. Bear in mind, Amitabha is not so much a being as the personification of oneness. So when we start to practice Buddhism, we gradually awaken to the idea that our self is not a separate and discrete thing, but part of a greater whole. The idea of interdependence is part of this understanding. Everything is related to everything. But it's even more than that. We can't exist separately from oneness any more than a wave can exist separately from the ocean. And so when you say Namo Amida Butsu, with true and trusting, really believing that you can experience oneness yourself, then you're getting to the marrow of that realization. And then you don't have to wait till you die to be reborn in the pure land. That transcendence of the ego is the pure land, right in this moment. It's also a reminder, though, that you're never battling the spiritual, uh, you're never fighting a spiritual battle by yourself. So the beautiful thing about Pure Land Buddhism is that moment when Amitabha vowed to help all beings achieve liberation. Sakyamuni Buddha did essentially the same thing, but we have, when we look at, at Amitabha, we have this embodiment of this principle that we're practicing together for the benefit of all beings, not just for, not just for ourselves. And so when you greet someone with Namo Amida Butsu or Adita Phat, you're acknowledging that you're experiencing togetherness with another Buddha-to-be. 
So I was talking about this one time and, and, uh, to someone, and they had an interesting insight. This fellow was, uh, you know, he, he was a gym rep, and he was talking about lifting weights. And he said, How you, you know, you might use a spotter when you're doing a bench press. So if you've ever spent much time around a gym, you know what he's talking about. You load up a, a bar with a little bit more than you can usually lift, and you have someone there to help you out. And so if you get stuck on your way up, your spotter can, can help you. And a lot of the time, all they got to do is put a fingertip under there. And you're still doing all of the work, but just that little bit of extra help will help you get, your, get it extended all the way. You're still doing the heavy lifting, but having that help makes it possible. And what I found when I was working at the Y is if you have a spotter, if you know that, that help, help and safety is available, you'll lift more than you would without it. Even if your spotter never touches the weight, just knowing that that help is available makes it possible for you to do more than you would have. And so Pureland Buddhists are not the only ones who look to outside help from time to time in their spiritual path. Um, I mentioned somebody asked me last week, how do you fulfill the Bodhisattva vows? Well, the, the great vows are sentient beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transcend them all. Dharma gates are infinite. I vow to enter them all. The Buddha way is inconceivable. I vow to embody it. So when we take those vows, we're committing to do something that's impossible for the benefit of all beings, not just ourselves. And so when you become enlightened, you would continue to take rebirth so that you can help others. And those who do that are called bodhisattvas, which means Buddhist to be. And so they can be reborn in heavens where there's like Avalokiteshvara, for example, can reach out to help others. So you're vowing to become a sort of heavenly spotter, to be there for other people as they need it. And you don't have to wait until you've been reborn to do that. You can do that now. Being here is practicing the Bodhisattva way because you're here to support one another. Um, you don't have to believe literally in bodhisattvas in order to benefit from them. So I believe in wisdom, and I believe that all beings, even those who are struggling with their cravings like hungry ghosts, deserve to find peace. And so when I bow to Manjushri, as we did earlier, Garba, I hope to become one with them in wisdom and in commitment. Garba made a vow that he would uh, continue to be reborn in the hell realms in order to help others until, every, until the hells were emptied. He was going to keep coming back there. Now, does that really happen? I don't know. But can we resolve to, to be there with people even if they're living in difficult times, even if they're struggling to transcend the things that keep bringing them back to suffering? Sure we can. Um, as for Kwan Am, the big statue out there. I've received compassion from amazing teachers, and I'm grateful for that. And I've seen the power of compassion to free my own mind. And so I have no problem believing in the transformative power of compassion, which is what Avalokiteshvara embodies. So I gladly bow to that. So I hope that, that this has helped you uh, kind of understand the role that faith might play in your own practice. Uh, find you a context for that. And uh, thank you very much for your attention. Namo Amidavisi.
Thank you for joining me for episode 26 of The Adventures of Sariputta and Moggallana. I hope you enjoyed the story of the Bodhisattva and his past life, and I hope you learned something beneficial from the discussion of faith, worship, and practice. Now go save the world. Mm-hmm.